Hi, I'm Caitlin Prest, and I am here in your ear to tell you about a very incredible new show called Asking For It. Asking For It is a darkly comedic series that follows a queer femme singer whose history of violence finds her no matter how many times she runs away. It has an original soundtrack, and it'll make you laugh, cry, and feel a little bit less alone. Asking for it. Subscribe now. This is a CBC Podcast. The mighty river begins as a trickle. The Columbia bubbles out of a marsh between the Purcell and Rocky Mountains in southeastern BC, where I live. It soon meanders into a long, shallow, almost impossibly blue lake. I stood in this very spot over 20 years ago on a brilliant spring morning, June 2002. A New Yorker named Christopher Swain was about to dip down into the Columbia here at its headwaters. And if all went as planned, Swain would swim for 2,000 kilometers until he reached the salt and seagulls of the Pacific Ocean in Oregon. Swain was wearing one of those three-quarter length swimsuits only serious swimmers and power lifters wear. I was there recording this epic swim for the CBC, a little in awe of the determined American in the funny swimsuit. If he gave a speech, I don't remember it. I do remember something else. A large group of elementary school kids was there to see Swain off. All those kids and their teachers had been given these little paper cups. Christopher Swain had one as well. And after a boisterous countdown, they dipped those cups down into the river and took a big gulp. Swain remembers this too. I was moved by that. I mean, literally that first 10 kilometers of the river that is Columbia Lake and its outlet that was known to be drinkable. What was true on day one, that this is a drinkable river, that wouldn't be true again for the entire swim. The Columbia's origins were as pure as the dreams of those kids from Martin Morgeau Elementary, but that wouldn't last. Swain's epic journey would take him past the effluent of pulp mills and discharge of lead smelters, through the toxic wash of industrial agriculture and sewage of towns and cities. And just in case he had any further designs on taking another gulp, he'd also swim past the world's largest nuclear waste dump site in Hanford, Washington. The river Swain so eagerly drank from at its British Columbia source would give him seven ear infections, four respiratory scares, and countless skin rashes. Twice, his lymph nodes would swell up to the size of ping pong balls. By mid-swim, he's basically out there in the aquatic version of a hazmat suit. You know, the Columbia River is contaminated with everything from arsenic to zinc to sewage to nuclear waste, and yet it stands up, and it's one of the most beautiful powerful and compelling waterways on the planet. The Columbia is also one of the most dammed up river systems on this planet. There's 14 dams on the main river alone and dozens more on its tributaries. Dams where Swain would have to haul himself out of the water and portage around. This once majestic river has been turned into a necklace of lakes and reservoirs that barely flows in sections. And here's the kicker. Canada and the United States did this together. They conceived an unprecedented plan to stop the Columbia 
again and again and again. They did it largely with a negotiated agreement known as the Columbia River Treaty. Parts of the treaty expire next year, and now, more than a half century later, it's being renegotiated as I speak to you. At stake is one of the great rivers on this continent, and billions of dollars in hydroelectric revenue, and billions more from the crops the Columbia irrigates. Also at stake, something much bigger, our fresh water. The Columbia River Treaty didn't have any provisions in it that were specifically aimed at taking good care with the river itself. In that initial treaty in the 60s, nobody was thinking about the good of the river. No one was thinking about the people and the cultures involved. And that is bigger than an economic outcome. I'm Bob Keating, and this is Storylines. Every week, a journalist brings you a story you need to hear from a different corner of Canada. This week, I'm taking you to my beautiful home in the Kootenay region of southeast BC. In the last couple decades as a CBC journalist, I've met people deeply affected by the Columbia River Treaty, a government agreement decided by Victoria, Ottawa, and Washington that literally shaped where I live, changed the landscape and the lives of people you're about to meet. People with a tremendous amount at stake in a renewed treaty. Canadian and American negotiators met last week in Portland, Oregon, to try and draw up a new treaty. It's fitting this latest round was in Oregon, because the story of the Columbia River Treaty begins in Portland with a tragedy. First pictures from the flood disaster areas of Canada and the USA tell their own terrible story. Vast areas on both sides of the border have been engulfed by swollen floodwaters of the Columbia River, which swept away everything in their path. The Columbia often flooded, but in the spring of 1948, the flooding was catastrophic, swamping towns and cities from its Canadian headwaters right to the Oregon coast. No one had seen anything quite like it, as the BBC dramatically recounted. Worst hit was the small town of Van Port near Portland, Oregon, where almost without warning, the river burst through a dike, literally washing whole streets away. Van Port, Oregon, was the largest public housing camp in America and the second biggest city in Oregon. On May 30, 1948, a dike breach sending a 10-foot wall of water pouring in. Poor engineering and a chaotic evacuation resulted in the deaths of at least 15 people, perhaps as many as 50. The victims were working class and many black. Authorities didn't bother to keep a detailed record. Along the banks of the Columbia River, desolation lies on every hand, while the total death roll is still unknown. And so, from the old world, our sympathy goes out to the peoples of Canada and the USA, who share this heavy burden of tragedy and loss. Thousands of people on both sides of the border were left homeless. To ensure this type of flooding never happened again, Prime Minister John Diefenbaker and President Eisenhower signed the Columbia River Treaty in 1961. Engineers had come up with an audacious scheme to control the river. The Columbia River, one of the most erratic in the world, is being harnessed. 30 miles north of the American border, Canadian engineers are constructing the massive Arrow Dam. The intent was to build three dams in Canada, and a fourth on one of its tributaries in Montana, backing up a drainage system the size of France. Nothing like it had ever been attempted. An unprecedented example of cross-border cooperation to manage water. 
or so the propaganda films of the day said. The Columbia River Project is a fine example of cooperation between two countries which will make possible a better life for millions both sides of the border. An army of workers intended to mow down 600 kilometers of B.C. bush to make way for the water. Entire valleys would be flooded, and more than 2,000 people would have to move. They didn't really ask people who live in the Columbia Basin if they wanted the dams and the giant reservoirs they were about to create. They told them. Hearings were held, but locals soon learned their input meant nothing. Towns and farms would be relocated or burned on the spot and some of the most productive farmland in BC would soon be underwater. In exchange, the US would pay Canada hundreds of millions of dollars every year in what's known as the Canadian Entitlement. Essentially, the Americans pay to store water in Canada and dictate when that water is released. If that treaty was to be negotiated today, Canada and British Columbia would never stand for the deal that we uh, concluded with the Americans. Some locals tried to fight, like RAF pilot Chris Spicer, who spoke to the CBC in 1975. Spicer survived the Second World War and scoured the world looking for the perfect piece of farmland. He settled in picturesque Nacusp on Arrow Lakes, part of the Columbia system. Spicer married a local botanist and had twin girls. An idyllic rural Canadian life, until it was threatened by a treaty they had no say in. The unfairness of the scheme turned Chris Spicer into a fighter again. The residents of the Arrow Lakes feel that the battle will never be lost until the water comes right over their properties and dooms them to elimination. But this was one fight Chris Spicer and his neighbors could not win. The treaty and dams, it was argued, would not only prevent flooding, they would also make governments and utility companies on both sides of the border rich in hydroelectric dollars the way neighboring Alberta was becoming a wash in oil money. Nothing was going to stop the damming of the Columbia. The heavy machines moved in so quickly, in some valleys they didn't even bother to log the trees before the water came. They'd shoot to the surface like missiles in decades to come. Spicer kept his farmhouse from being burned and was given land higher up on the mountain, but life was never the same again. The pilot who fought the Nazis had two heart attacks after the flooding, and died on the farm he so cherished and raised a family on. My particular piece of land is probably one of the most valuable pieces of farm and in British Columbia. Uh, and we had a wonderful, happy life here, which came to an end with the building of the High Arrow Dam. We plant them in the spring in, in flats in, in February and um, plant them out in May. This year it was a month later because it never stopped raining. Chris Spicer's daughter, Janet Spicer, pushes a wheelbarrow full of leeks up the hill to her van. The leeks are heavy and Janet is 73, but she's trying to beat forecasted snow and isn't afraid of hard work. They didn't used to be, but now they're quite a high value crop. But they're very labor intensive, so I couldn't grow more than I do. Janet Spicer has taken what her parents began and turned it into one of the most productive organic farms in the Columbia Basin, despite the original farmland being flooded. Mostly she farms on the upper bench her dad was given. She was just a teenager when the treaty was signed and the water rose, but remembers what life was like before. It was different than the valley, you know. It was about 250 uh, family farms selling 
eggs and cream and vegetables and fruit. There was a huge kinship among everybody. I think it was a shocking act of violence and cruelty to just drown us out. Many farmers here left in disgust and gave up farming altogether, and it shows. The valley used to feed itself. Now Janet's farm is one of the last left. It's estimated 95% of food consumed in the upper Columbia Basin is imported. We were told at the time that, that BC didn't need the Arrow Lakes Valley, even though it was so productive. The whole thing is so short-sighted, and it's, it, it's irrecoverable. That's the thing. It, it's not that it can be put back. It can't. I'm very motivated, very driven by my parents to keep the farm going. Right here, we're standing on a farm. What used to be a beautiful farm. An hour to the south is Janet's sister Crystal's place. Crystal lives in Edgewood, one of the relocated towns. She takes me to where the town used to be, on the shores of Arrow Lake before it was dragged to higher ground. It had spring water, it had a market right there. It had the perfect soil. It had a moderate climate from this lovely lake. This summer, lake levels were particularly low. The shoreline looked like a sandy moonscape with exposed stumps and sand dunes that jet out unnaturally. There's frequent dust storms. Since the flooding, commercial fishing on the Columbia system collapsed. Wildlife disappeared along with entire communities. Yet Crystal Spicer invited the Canadian Negotiating Committee out to see what the dams and water did to her home, hoping a new treaty will address some of the mistakes of the past. Yeah, the delegation came out. I I was extremely impressed. You cannot bring back the farmland. And that is an absolute tragedy. As far as ecosystems, as far as the natural systems, absolutely. And that's what Crystal and Janet and many of their neighbours are hoping for more consistent water levels. Water levels here fluctuate by as much as 60 feet. And under the terms of the Columbia River Treaty, it's the Americans who largely control those levels. The Americans send the BC government a portion of the revenue they generate from power sales and control our water. The Spicers and many others on the Columbia system don't care much about that payment between utilities and governments. They want more control over water levels, so fluctuations are more consistent. Instead of 60 feet, perhaps 20. If we said we want it back to the way it was, they're not going to look at you. I actually already tried that. We thought of something that the government might be interested in. We'll give 20 feet up and we'll take 20 feet down. So that has been modeled and it looks so positive for all the social, economic, and environmental issues. And it would not reduce power generation. Power generation was one of the driving forces behind the initial treaty. And by that metric, it's been successful. This river system has been turned into the workhorse of the West. U.S. dams alone account for 40% of America's hydroelectric power. The other driving force was flood control. And I've seen firsthand what happens when a river gets out of control. We need to take a quick break. Storylines will be right back with this. If what you care about is money and cheap power, 
you know, the cheapest possible electricity you can get, then you use the water for that purpose and you don't care about water's other purposes. And that's a lot of people. Hi, I'm Caitlin Prest, and I am here in your ear to tell you about a very incredible new show called Asking For It. Asking For It is a darkly comedic series that follows a queer femme singer whose history of violence finds her no matter how many times she runs away. It has an original soundtrack, and it'll make you laugh, cry, and feel a little bit less alone. Asking for it. Subscribe now. We're here in downtown Calgary overlooking the Bow River, just one of the rivers causing devastation throughout southern Alberta. Getting word this evening that at least three people have died south of here in the High River area. The Columbia River Treaty accomplished what its authors intended, controlling one of the largest rivers in the West. Wild rivers flood. A decade ago, a spring surge poured out of the mountains and rolled east to Alberta. That water hit the prairies like a beer spilled on a pool table. That kind of rushing water is feeding this crisis. If we zoom into the My family lived in High River, the worst hit community. My sister-in-law told me she had minutes to get out of their home next to the Highwood River. As she sped away, people dove into the back of her pickup truck to escape the oncoming water. The flooding was widespread and devastating. My brothers played poker with the mayor, who was so overwhelmed by the flooding, he just quit. So did my mother's heart. She was flooded and evacuated like my brothers. Shortly after she got back into her home, she died sitting in bed. She was 67 and left three admitted mama's boys without one. Do I blame the flooding? No, but I'm certain the stress of it was a factor. Shortly after that, my younger brother and his wife told their three daughters they could fill one suitcase each. They were selling everything else and moving to Australia. Flooding is hard on communities and hard on families. My guy, he's over there. He's on that boat. He's rescuing some people who are in wheelchairs that were stranded in their house. Five years later, it happened again, this time to the west of me in Grand Forks devastating floods from two rivers, the Kettle and Granby. I spent weeks in Grand Forks reporting on the story. I mean, our place is a loss, but they're strapped in there. There's still his wife and daughter and their animals. That's two floods in five years on both sides of the Columbia Basin. I have no doubt the Columbia would have spilled its banks with terrible consequences as well. It's a far bigger river, and we had the same snowpack and the same rain events as High River and Grand Forks. But catastrophic flooding doesn't happen in the Columbia River Basin because the system is controlled. The reservoirs are near empty in spring to accommodate a sudden rush of snowmelt and rain. It's a calculation humans make, not Mother Nature anymore. And then there's power generation. The Hugh Keenly side facility did not have any generation before, and it was purely a flood control facility. And we came and built an expansion hydro-generating facility around the side of it. I get a tour of one of the dams and generating stations from Dan Geisler with the Columbia Power Corporation. The generating plant is spotless and hums constantly. 
Geyser points out the spinning turbines that generate electricity. BC Hydro has some of its biggest facilities on the Columbia River. Upstream of us is Revelstoke Dam, and it has three, three gigawatts of power capacity. And then above that is Mica Dam, which again has three gigawatts. So that's six gigawatts. That's a six billion watts of capacity. Um, and that is approximately half of the hydro capacity for BC Hydro. Just for those two? Just for those two dams, yeah. And the Columbia system is even more dammed up on the American side of the river. U.S. dams on the Columbia literally light up the American West. And it's so-called green power because the damage has already been done to the ecosystem. Then it's just a matter of spinning turbines and making money. To a banker or outsider looking in, the treaty that started all this has been an unequivocal success. The Columbia Basin doesn't flood, and it creates the electricity we need for all those computers and electric cars we demand. The Columbia helps us beat our addiction to fossil fuels. Yet the people who live around me, who live around this river, see it through a different lens. To them, it's become unrecognizable, uninhabitable even. Biologist James Crossman walks down the rocky shore of the Columbia, near Castlegar, B.C. He carries a heavy-looking recording device, about the size of a portable reel-to-reel machine that used to exist when I started my career. Crossman plops a waterproof microphone into the river. And what it's doing is it's listening for active acoustic transmitters, basically tags that are implanted in the sturgeon. Crossman is a renowned expert on white sturgeon the largest freshwater fish on this continent. Sturgeon can grow to be 20 feet long and live to be as old as humans. They've survived ice ages, but aren't surviving a changed Columbia. They've evolved over 200 million years. Like It's really remarkable. And they've evolved to survive for a long time. And humans have made changes to the areas that they live within a single generation. Those changes are apparent right where James Crossman drops his microphone. The very dam Dan Geisler gave me a tour of looms overhead, a 50-meter-high wall of concrete blocking the sturgeon's natural migration to the Pacific. Since dams were built on the Columbia, sturgeon have been in freefall. The issue with the population is they're undergoing what we call recruitment failure. So we have insufficient numbers of really young fish surviving to an age where they would then reproduce. And so, biologists like Crossman on both sides of the border work full-time to try and revive a fish that was here when dinosaurs were around, hoping sturgeon don't meet the same fate. It may be too late for other fish species, though. First Nation elder Chad Enius leads a salmon ceremony on the banks of the Columbia. Interior BC First Nations do this every spring, bang rocks and say a prayer to summon depleted salmon stocks home. It's beyond just important for our people. I think it's important uh, in terms of it being a keystone species in the Columbia. You know, there's a big difference. The number of other animals that you see that might have depended on salmon, just like we depend on salmon for food. The Columbia used to teem with salmon. They were so plentiful, First Nations from all over the continent would come to trade with people here, fortunate enough to have the food come to them. People talk about walking across the, the river at Athamur, you know, on the backs of fish because they were so plentiful. 
But as the dams came in, all of a sudden, one main food source is no longer available. Tanaha Nation Chair Catherine Tanise was a teenager when the treaty dams were built. The framers of the treaty paid little attention to white settlers and ignored its original inhabitants completely. In some cases, First Nations weren't even told giant reservoirs were about to swamp their fishing grounds and burial sites. Canadian First Nations fought to be at the negotiating table this time around and were given seats as observers. They want return of salmon to the Upper Columbia, which will be much tougher than reviving sturgeon. We have the headwaters of the Columbia that are right smack dab in the middle of Dunaka territory. We need to make sure that we continue to give that river a voice, you know, to make the Dunaka whole again. We get a resource back that was part of us. I do think a lot has changed, and I am pleased to see three First Nations advising and contributing as co-equal partners in the negotiation process for Canada. I take a walk along the shores of Kootenay Lake with Eileen Delahanty Perks. Delahanty Perks wrote the definitive book on the treaty, A River Captured. She has a unique perspective on the treaty because she's American, yet raised her sons in the Canadian part of the Columbia Basin and saw an injustice. If you live in the region and you care about the water and the land, it's compelling to see how people in power who do not live in the region and do not give a flying you-know-what about it other than money that it can generate for them go about laying waste to it. Like many people affected by the treaty, Delahanty Perks isn't confident the U.S. or Canada, for that matter, will give up billions of dollars in hydroelectric power the dams generate. But she hopes this time around, negotiators take the river itself into account, along with the people and wildlife that depend on it. She says what's at stake can't be underestimated. Canadians only need look south to the Colorado to see what can happen when a river is mismanaged. After months of deadlock negotiations between state governments over how to address the shrinking water supply of the Colorado River, the Biden administration is now stepping in. The Colorado doesn't reach the ocean anymore as dry states squabble over its exhausted flows. The 40 million Americans who rely on the Colorado River are facing the prospect of their water running dry. The Columbia is in one way more complex than the Colorado. It's shared by two nations, and this unique treaty between us to manage it. Kathy Eichenberger, BC's lead negotiator, says they've got the message people in the Columbia Basin won't be ignored anymore. They want to be acknowledged. They want to see uh, an acknowledgement of what was lost. And they want to see improvements around the basin, around the reservoirs. They look back on uh, what happened as a social justice issue. That is why we're passionate about listening to the people and doing it right this time and not making the mistakes of the past. Parts of the treaty expire next year, so there's pressure on negotiators like Eichenberger to get it done and get it right this time. The river that works so hard for us deserves it. A good deal allows some of the water to flow, not as a monetary generator of profit, but as a habitat for all of us. You know, the details of it are less important. Canada getting this or the U.S. getting that. I love the words of one of the Indigenous advocates, one river for the benefit of all.
That's all for Storylines this week. Today's episode was reported and written by me, Bob Keating. The story was edited by Allison Cook and A.C. Rowe, who is also the producer of Storylines. The show is part of the CBC Audio Doc Unit. If you like the show and care about Canadian documentaries, the best way to show it is to leave us a five-star rating. Better still, tell a friend about us. I'm Bob Keating. Thanks for listening. For more CBC Podcasts, go to cbc.ca slash podcasts.